remember that, or I have no idea where that came from. So you can either refer to me as Pastor Matt or Reverend DJ Coldcuts. I'm fine with either one. <laughs> it's a joy and a privilege to be here this morning. I've been friends with uh, your pastor, Matt, for uh, several years now. Um, and uh, I was telling him recently uh, of uh, we have been serving, or I've been serving as the assistant pastor of Christ the King in Somerville. Uh, and have been recently called to uh, plant a church in Quincy, Massachusetts, so just south of the city. So you can pray for my family and I as we make that transition next year. Um, the scripture that we are going to be looking at today uh, is one that I have uh, deeply benefited from in study. I hope that you'll see the depth and wonder of our passage this morning as well. As we look at it, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you now send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might cry out to you, Abba, Father, that we might have uh, eyes to see the wonders of your love for us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, Sabrina's story is remarkable. When she was eight months old, uh, the foster home where she was staying caught fire. And uh, there was little that she, as an infant, could do uh, to, sa to save herself. And so she was literally handed out the window by another child that was there in the foster home. She came to stay with us, with my family, uh, shortly after that, still smelling of smoke from the fire from which she'd been delivered. I was six at the time. And she lived with us for several months before my family uh, made the decision to try to adopt her. Um, but this was not an easy or an automatic thing. In fact, it took uh, nearly seven years of legal custody hearings uh, for the adoption to be finalized, uh, during which she had court-ordered visits uh, every week to the, the woman that she called her birth mother, uh, a woman who was addicted to drugs, uh, mentally disturbed, sadly unfit to care for her. And so during those seven years of court-ordered visits, uh, she saw what her life could have been like. But the day that she was adopted, and Sabrina is now my sister, uh, her life, her very identity, was changed forever. She would tell me uh, years later, I think we were both in our 20s, uh, that her entire worldview stemmed from the fact that she is adopted. And this is really the point of our passage here in front of us this morning. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, that our understanding of Christianity can never be better than our grasp of adoption. 
Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of being God's child and having God as their father. If we would internalize this wonderful truth of our adoption in Christ, if it were to become the foundation uh, by which we approached all of life, uh, I, I think I know it would set us free from so much heartache and devastation. It would set us free to love. To say it another way, only when our fundamental identity in this world is that of an adopted child of God through the work of Jesus Christ can we experience true freedom. Because this passage shows us that in Christ we are given first a new identity, second a new freedom, and third a new cry. If you're somebody that likes to take notes, that's my outline. In Christ we are given a new identity, a new freedom, and a new cry. So first, a new identity. And something I want to address uh, right off the bat is the, uh, the masculine or the son language that's in this passage. Some of you may see this immediately as being gender exclusive or sexist. Um, but Paul here is actually making a radically equalizing statement. Uh, you see, in this culture, it was only the sons and often only the eldest sons who received an inheritance. And so Paul, who has uh, just told us at the end of chapter 3, that in Christ there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus through faith. Paul there is not saying that uh, these distinctions don't exist or these categories don't exist, but what he's doing is making a radical statement that before your class or your status, before your ethnicity, before even your gender, you have a, an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity that we can have. It's an identity that is given to us by grace, and thus we can't look down on anyone who's not in our identity category. And this identity is that we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are sons of God. We belong to God. This is what we signify at baptism. Um, in my congregation, we've had a lot of babies born over the last uh, several months, and so I've had the privilege to do several baptisms, and I've, uh, I have the privilege actually next Sunday uh, to baptize my own uh, infant son, Liam. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that uh, Liam will make a lot of decisions in his life about uh, who he is going to be, who he wants to be. I grew up in Illinois, so my hope is uh, that he'll be a Chicago Cubs fan. But ultimately, that is up to him. But uh, he'll make many decisions in his life about who he wants to be, but what a beautiful thing that before he can speak, before he can make these decisions about who he wants to be, his deepest identity as a child of God will already be given to, given to him. He will be marked by grace. And so all who are baptized into Christ, Paul says at the end of Galatians 3, male and female are sons in that we are heirs, so that all of uh, the rights and privileges of Jesus, God's son, are ours by grace. And so in verses 1 and 2, Paul uses the illustration of a son who is the heir of a wealthy family, who in Greek society would have been known as the young master. And in this culture, far from uh, spoiling the children, his life would have looked very similar to that of one of the household servants. Uh, until, that is, uh, a certain day, until he had come of age, and then on a fixed day, his status would change and he would inherit everything. Well, in the same way, Paul says in verse 3, we were once slaves to the elementary principles of the world. And this is a, a difficult phrase to understand. 
Uh, it's very broad. Paul actually uses it, uh, this term, to, to talk about both Jewish and Gentile believers in different places, and he probably means to address both here. Uh, so we might understand this phrase, uh, uh, the elementary principles of the world, as the way of the world, or the way that this world operates. And the way that this world operates, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, is by a mentality of what I do defines who I am. But the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming and the gospel that he's astonished that the Galatians are in danger of departing from uh, is this fundamental reversal of that. The gospel is who I am, a child of God by his grace, defines what I do. Adoption is a beautiful, a perfect picture of this. Adoptive parents have to continually reinforce to their adopted children that their identity is firmly in place, that their love will not be withdrawn. And this is necessary because if you think about it, every adoption results from circumstances in this world that are not the way that things are supposed to be. The death of a parent, or abandonment, or addiction, or extreme poverty. Every adoption, then, is a redemptive response to the brokenness of this world. And adopted children often carry uh, the brokenness of these traumatic uh, experiences with them. There was a film that uh, came out a couple years ago called Lion, uh, a good film. And uh, there's a line in there where the protagonist says to his parents, uh, you weren't just adopting my brother and I, you were adopting our past. Uh, and anyone who has been adopted or uh, has adopted knows this to be true. I've already told you that my family adopted uh, my younger sister, Sabrina. And now regardless of what uh, Sabrina did, regardless of whether she behaved as a daughter should or not, her identity would never change. No matter how many meltdowns she had at the dinner table, no matter how often she lashed out and her spaghettios ended up all over the place, my parents would never cease to tell her that she would, was their daughter whom they loved very much. Even if the brokenness remained forever, it would never change her identity. And likewise, our spiritual adoption has taken place because things in this world are not the way that they're supposed to be. And like adopted children, we carry the brokenness of this broken world with us throughout our lives. But if we are adopted in Christ, it will never change our identity. And so in Christ, we are given a new identity. And second, we are given a new freedom. Now, the reason that we carry this world's uh, brokenness with us and the reason this world is broken, uh, the story of Scripture tells us, is because we broke it. In the beginning, God created all things good. All creation sang together in harmony a song of their creator's glory. But then humanity, the very image of God, who is to take uh, the lead role in this chorus of singing God's glory, uh, started to sing a different song. Not to sing off-key, but to sing a different song altogether. Um, because what our first parents, Adam and Eve, were doing in their distrust and rebellion from God was trying to establish an identity apart from their creator. Believing the whispers of the evil one, uh, they believed that this would set them free. But to their horror, they found that they had enslaved themselves. Uh, Don Carson uses the image that they thought they would know about good and evil like an oncologist, like a cancer doctor knows cancer. 
but they found instead that they knew evil like a cancer patient knows evil. It was inside them, and it would spread to everything. And this slavery to sin would be passed down to every person, this sinful desire to find our identity apart from our Creator and to ultimately reject Him as Father. And so today, one of the most uh, pervasive modern narratives is that you don't belong to anyone or anything except yourself. We hear this uh, all the time on, on movies and various talk shows. I decide for myself what makes me free. I listen to my inner voice. Well, there's several problems with this. Uh, if you have a five-year-old and you tell him it's bedtime, and he says, you know what, parents, my inner voice is telling me that I should stay up until midnight eating Oreos and watching TV, because that's who I am. That's the real me. Well, this narrative may claim to offer freedom, um, but true freedom is not doing whatever you want. Rather, it's being free to be who you were created to be. This narrative uh, that you don't belong to anyone or, or anything is also a false narrative. It's a myth. Because you can't really answer the question, who are you, without relation to someone or something else. And modern uh, sociologists have shown this, that those who seek an identity in and of themselves uh, end up being only slaves to shifting trends and comparisons of themselves to other people, often through social media. We all derive our identity from something beyond ourselves. Um, as Bob Dylan sang in the 70s, you've got to serve somebody. We all have masters, or little g-gods, as it were. And postmodern writer David Foster Wallace, in what's become a famous uh, commencement speech, makes this point emphatically when he says, uh, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships something. And if you worship the wrong thing, Wallace says, it will eat you alive. How does this play itself out practically? Let's say you find your identity in your career. That would be a common one. You have success in your career, and everyone thinks highly of you. So you naturally build your identity around being successful and respected. It becomes who you are to yourself, who you want other people to see you as. Uh, and then with that comes this burden, this pressure to continue to be successful and respected and a fear and anxiety of being disrespected, a fear and anxiety of people seeing you as other than how you want to be seen. Well, if and when uh, you feel disrespected, if and when you're not successful, if and when you fail, you'll find that that's when your most erratic, uncontrollable emotions will surface. And I find that uh, this is something that plagues pastors as well. Uh, it's so easy to put my identity in my ministry and when I unconsciously slip into this uh, mode of operating, I find that I not only want to be seen as a good pastor or preacher, I need to be seen this way. Uh, if that's where I'm finding my identity, then I can't take any criticism. If that's where I'm finding my identity, then the burden of writing a sermon can bring so much fear and anxiety, almost a, a paralysis of writing a bad sermon, uh, that I, I can't get any work done. But when I am conscious, when I go back to God's Word and become conscious again by His Holy Spirit of my deepest identity as an adopted son of God, then I am set free to enjoy the work that God has called me to do. And I know there's, there's not a lot of pastors out there, but I wonder whether you can relate to this. 
So you see, you belong to that in which you place your identity. It's a myth that you uh, can not belong to anything. True freedom is only found when we belong to the right master. When we belong to our loving creator, he who knit us together, the great lover of our souls. And the good news of the gospel is that this God has done everything to bring us home. And we see this in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. We see Jesus' divinity in that he was sent, meaning uh, he pre-existed with the Father and the Spirit. But we also see his humanity in this next phrase, that he was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You see, there's nothing that we can do to make up for the offense that we rejected God as our Father and sought to establish an identity apart from him. Jesus' great uh, parable of this is the parable of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. Who was, what he was essentially doing, you have to understand, is uh, attempting to unsun himself, as one commentator says. He was making a total breach with the family. There's one uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, scholar who says that they likely would have carried out his funeral when the younger son left. And we see this in the fact that when uh, he returns, the father said, my son was dead and is now alive again. Uh, but Miroslav Volf, the commentator, writes, the most significant aspect of the story is that the father who lets his son depart does not let go of the relationship between them. The eyes that searched for and finally caught sight of the son in the distance tell of a heart that was with the son in the distant country. And he goes on to say, when the son's attempt to unsun himself changed the son's identity, the father had to renegotiate his own identity as a father. And he runs to him, he embraces him at the, uh, the cost of shame amongst his community. And in the sheer joy of his father's embrace, the son's identity begins to change once more. The good news is that God himself took action. He renegotiated his identity. He came down, entered into our suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. His perfect life counts in place of our sinful life. I have a friend who was, uh, who him and his, his wife adopted a little girl after they already had uh, biological children. And uh, he's told me that he often... Uh, experiences this, this question in public places of which of the children are yours? Uh, to which he responds, they're all mine. And the person will then say, no, but you, you know what I mean. Which of them are yours? Uh, to which he will respond emphatically, the adopted child is mine just as the other children are mine. Don't you see that when we are united to Christ by faith, God the Father looks at us through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he says to us, you are mine as Jesus is mine. When we receive adoption as sons, we receive all the rights and privileges of sons. Uh, the love that God the Father has for God the Son for all eternity, the love that spilled over and made the world is now that same love that is fully ours as children of God. But for our identity to be changed uh, from that of a slave to that of a son, Jesus' identity had to be changed from that of a son to that of a slave. That's how it's spoken of in Philippians 2, that he 
who was by nature God, emptied himself of all the rights and privileges of his divine sonship and took on the form of a servant, of a slave. He submitted himself to being identified with sinners so that we might be identified with the righteous one. You see, how costly was our adoption? How costly was our freedom? So how do we live out of this new freedom of our adoption? Well, Paul is moving towards this, uh, this pivotal statement in uh, Galatians 5, 13 and 14, in which he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. He goes on to say, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when we sin, we turn back to the slavery of our former identity. We turn back to those cruel masters that would enslave us. Paul's message here is don't go back to those cruel masters. Remember the cost of your adoption and be who you are. Not who you are by nature, by your birth, but be who you are by grace, by your second birth, by your adoption. As children are called to represent and resemble their parents, uh, so Paul is saying when we love one another, we represent and resemble our father. And therefore, we live out our identity as sons, uh, showing the world this peculiar and this powerful love that we have received from the Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That's 1 John 3.1. How do we show the world this kind of love? Well, I think all of us are called to practice adoption in our relationships. Uh, now, I don't mean by that that all are called to adopt orphan children. Maybe that is what God is calling you to. I don't want to dismiss uh, that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, may be moving in some of your hearts to consider that. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And I know not everyone is uh, in circumstances for that. But we are, I believe, all called to practice an adoption kind of love. And to love those that God places in our life in an intentional, committed, and sacrificial way to show those people and the world the adoption, love of our, of our God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are we pursuing those kind of intentional, committed relationships in our lives? So in Christ, we are given a new identity, a new freedom, and lastly, we are given a new cry. We see uh, in this passage that our adoption was a Trinitarian work of God. That God the Father sent God the Son to die for us, verse 4, and God the Holy Spirit to live in us, verse 6. Because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our new identity as sons is uh, such unbelievably good news that we can't even accept it without the Holy Spirit confirming it in our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God, adopted through Christ, so that our heart's cry is for our Abba, for our Papa, for our Dad, for our Father. Listen, you may have never experienced genuine fatherly love, but your Heavenly Father is the Father that you've always longed for. In order for us to know how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, God also sends His Holy Spirit as an internal witness 
John Stott writes, God the Father sent the Son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent the Spirit that we might have the experience of sonship. Because in this life, uh, facing the trials that we face, we need more than just a propositional knowledge of our new status. We need to know it in our hearts. There's a powerful scene uh, illustrating this in a movie that's uh, several years old, the movie Blood Diamond. Um, it tells the story. It's set in, in Sierra Leone, Africa, uh, in the Civil War, uh, war-torn Sierra Leone. And it tells the story of a, of a local fisherman named Solomon Vandy uh, and his beloved young son, Dia. The beginning of the movie kind of shows the sweetness of their uh, father-son relationship, Dia, who dreams of, of growing up and becoming a doctor. Um, but soon into the film, the family gets separated, uh, and Solomon gets captured by these rebel forces when they come and invade their village. Solomon is uh, captured and forced to work in these diamond mines where you know, he finds this enormous diamond, and that's kind of the plot. Um, but Dia, his son, is also captured and is trained to be a child soldier. Uh, he and all the children that are with him are told that their families are dead, uh, that they, this, these, this army is their new family now, they are hardened and made to kill. They are, in one sense, reprogrammed, uh, renamed, given new names, and are, are given a completely new identity. This is the uh, tactic of the army. But Solomon, the father, never gives up his search for his son. Um, and with this, this diamond trader, he returns to the camp where he had buried this diamond. Uh, and it's the same camp where his son is being held. And as they're uh, digging it up, uh, Solomon looks up to see his son Dia pointing a gun straight at him. Dia, who has been sort of reprogrammed uh, to think ill of his family and to think about his new identity. And with all the, the righteous intensity of a loving father, Solomon says to him, Dia, look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vandi of the proud Mende tribe. He is reminding him of his true identity. He says, you are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains with your sister Nanja and the new baby. And then he goes on to say, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. And with tears streaming down both of their faces, Dia lowers his gun as his father draws him into his chest. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Reminds us of our true identity. Draws us again and again to our father's chest, into the very heart of the father. He does this by word, uh, through prayer, in the sacraments. Tells us that though we have done bad things, that does not change our identity. That we are sons and heirs of grace beyond measure through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, would you allow us uh, to see these things, to see uh, what is the great cost of our adoption and what uh, is your great love for us in Christ, uh, that we might be changed, that we might be sent out into the world uh, to do the work that you have called us to do. We pray this now as uh, we prepare to come to your table, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, at this time, uh, we are uh, once again.